All right, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, today we'll be in verses 12 through 26. If you're following along in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, it's on page 902. And if you don't have a Bible um, that you've at home that you can have for yourself or one that you have trouble reading, if you find this one to be uh, uh, easy to understand, you're welcome to take the Bible from the pew rack in front of you as our gift to you. You know, meals that we share with one another are always special. Uh, We usually don't take time to share a meal with somebody who's not family, not a friend, not somebody we know, or at least not somebody we trust. And that was certainly the case in ancient times as well. Table fellowship was reserved for families and for friends. And uh, there are some meals, you know, that's just ordinary meals. We usually don't spend with people outside of our circles. But there are some meals that are really special to us. You're probably thinking of things like birthday celebrations or Easter at grandma's house or maybe Christmas dinner or the, you know, the creme de la creme Thanksgiving dinner. Like we mentioned Thanksgiving today as well. That is a meal that to us is almost sacred. Uh, like we, we have traditions around it. It's really important as we celebrate it together with friends and family. But of course, we know as Christians, there is a meal that is sacred with a capital S. It's the Lord's Supper that we are going to be sharing together as a church family a meal that was instituted by our Lord for us to celebrate together. Today, as we come to this text, you will find that the Lord's Supper is uh, instituted, the new covenant in Christ's blood, as Jesus says. And Jesus takes this Passover supper with all the traditions related to it, and he institutes a new covenant meal for us to share. Today, as we're studying this text, I'm going to key in on verse 25, where the Lord says that he will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. And it's not just drinking from the fruit of the vine. In Luke's account, we, we see that Luke records, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not eat it again. I won't partake of this meal again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so the question that I want to ask you today is simply this. Will you be at Jesus's next supper? Will you be at Jesus's next supper? That's the controlling question I want you to have in mind as we study our text today. So will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? And I'll be reading from verse 12 to verse 26. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and a man carrying a a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, 
one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, surely not I. He said to them, it is one of the 12, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for standing in honor of it. Would you please be seated and join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that we come to today. In it, we are told that you will not partake of this meal again until you partake of it in the consummation of the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, my heart is heavy today for souls, the souls of men and women, boys and girls, within the sound of my voice today, that they would be at that supper, that they would join in that meal. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that your Holy Spirit would move today. In Jesus' name, amen. Some have called this account the account of the Last Supper. The Last Supper. You've probably heard it referred to like that. You probably, in your mind, when you hear that phrase, go back to the Da Vinci painting. Have you ever seen that painting with uh, Jesus and the 12 disciples reclining at the table? This is known as the Last Supper. Jesus made preparations for it. Apparently, he had arranged a, a you know, prearranged sign for these two disciples to find. Because it would have been unusual for a man to have been carrying a jar of water. Usually the women would carry them. So there was a signal for these two disciples to find somebody to take them to a place that was prepared. Now, because it was Passover and there was a, a feast and lots of people in town, it would have been hard to have made these kinds of arrangements. And so Jesus has a place set aside. Furthermore, we know from Scripture that Judas was already willing and interested in finding a good opportunity to betray the Lord. We saw that in the beginning of chapter 14. And so Jesus sends two of his disciples, I think Luke records them to be Peter and John, and they go and find this prearranged sign so that Judas can't tip off anybody to catch them at the meal at the very least. Jesus makes these arrangements and the disciples end up at this Last Supper. It's called the Last Supper, of course, because it was the last meal that the Lord shared with his disciples before he was crucified. So the Last Supper is an appropriate name for this meal, but I rather like the title at the beginning of verse 22 in the Christian Standard Bible, the version I was reading from. They call it the First Supper, <laughs> the First Lord's Supper. You see, the interesting part about this is that Jesus 
took what was a meal, an old covenant meal from the Passover, and he reoriented it all around himself. This is a pretty bold move, right? To take something with such tradition and to reinstitute it as a new covenant. D.A. Carson, when he comments about this, says that only as the divinely authoritative Lord and Son of Man who exercises God's own prerogatives could Jesus take up one of Israel's most sacred and inviolable traditions as the Passover and reconstitute it all around himself. Coming at that from a different angle, this is the way Sam Storms wrote about it in his book called The Passover Lamb. He says, what Jesus requested, indeed what he commanded, his followers and friends were commanded to do this subsequent his death. It's nothing short in his mind of shocking. Why? Well, it's one thing to desire that your memory be preserved after you pass away and that your loved ones honor you and esteem you throughout the remainder of their lives. But it's altogether something else to command that your friends and your family and your followers gather together regularly at a meal, not only in your name, but with you as the sole and exclusive focus. Jesus commanded his followers every time they break bread together to make him the central point of their celebration, to recall and retell his life and his death. Were anyone to make that kind of request of you before they passed away, you would think that their soon approaching death was giving them delusions of grandeur, megalomania. Like, this was a big thing. It'd be like Dallas Cowboys fans taking Thanksgiving and saying, no, it's not about the pilgrims and being thankful. It's about losing at football. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Too soon? Now, they took, they took a real tradition a traditional meal, and Jesus totally reoriented it. But rather than being something that surprised them, those of us who have been studying in the book of Exodus know that this was really where everything was pointing, the fulfillment of the meal. And so Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Grace, if you would go to that slide. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so what we come to see is that Jesus is the one to whom this meal had always pointed. He is the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And the animal sacrifice was always pointing to one who would fulfill this type. Jesus says he was uh, uh, leading this meal oftentimes. Have you ever been to a Jewish Seder or seen a Seder done? We sometimes at Thomas Hill Road Baptist, we would have one of our pastors kind of not to participate in the Jewish ritual, but to kind of explain what was taking place in the various elements. There's a lot in that meal that points to Jesus. Various things that the Jewish uh, people were doing that uh, unknowingly tells the story of Jesus. And there were four cups of wine. And uh, the, the person kind of overseeing the, the feast would explain the various cups. Now they had it in their mind from Exodus chapter 6 that there were four promises given to the Israelites. That he would rescue them from Egypt. That he would uh, free them from slavery. That he would redeem them with mighty acts and judgment. 
and that he would uh, restore fellowship, that there would be a renewed fellowship with God. These were the promises in the Exodus, and so each of those cups represented it. And it seems likely to me that Jesus, taking that third cup, was talking about this is the cup of redemption, that my blood would be poured out for many, and that the, um, the cup that he was praying in the garden that would pass was the cup of taking on the redemption of humanity, which involved God's judgment and wrath poured out. And then very likely he did not take that fourth cup. He looked at this cup and said, uh, but I won't drink of the fruit of the vine until we drink it in the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. See, that fourth cup was reserved for Jesus's next supper. It was reserved for Jesus's next supper. This is, of course, the wedding supper of the Lamb. If you follow in Revelation chapter uh, 1 and verse 19, we read, An angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus tells a parable about a supper that is coming. I'm connecting all these dots together so we can think about that next supper together. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 2, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to summon those invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent out other servants and said, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted, uh, fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away, one to his own farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent out his troops, killed those murderers, and burned down their city. Then he told his servants, The banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go then to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those servants went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. So this is Jesus. And we could preach, I could preach a whole sermon about this parable and some of the implications for the Jews and the Gentiles and what Jesus was intending to say. But the reality is there will be another supper. There will be a wedding supper of the Lamb. And the question is, will you be at that supper? Will you respond to the invitation to come and join the feast? Well, from our text today, in Mark chapter 14, we can learn from Judas a few things that being a dinner guest at the next supper is not about. Being a dinner guest at the next supper is not about. So we learned that it's not about our proximity to Jesus. A seat at Jesus's next supper is not about how close you were to him. It's hard to imagine somebody who is closer to Jesus than Judas was. Judas was called as one of Jesus's 12 disciples. He had the great privilege of seeing Jesus teach with authority. He watched as Jesus cast out demons. He was on the boat with the disciples when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. Jesus washed 
Judas's feet. In all likelihood, based on the various perspectives from the gospel accounts, Judas was sitting on Jesus's left and John was on Jesus's right, such that Judas could have leaned his head against Jesus's chest. That close to Jesus. And yet he missed it. Whether or not you will be at the next supper has nothing to do with your proximity to Jesus. Listen, you can come to church every single week. You could have been raised in this church, grow up as a child, and now you're a teenager. And every single Sunday, you hear the word of God preached. You see the miracle of lives that are changed. You watch as the Lord's Supper tells us the story, proclaims the death of Christ. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you, and you're not awake. You're not seeing. You're not listening. You're so close to Jesus, and yet you might walk away. Or perhaps you're a spouse of a believer, and your believing spouse brings you to church every Sunday. You sit here, and you hear the word of God preached. Jesus is right here calling. Come, sinner, come home. Receive the grace of God. You're invited. You're invited to the banquet. You can come. And you'll miss it. And you'll walk away. Judas shared bread with Jesus. Again, drawing from the introduction, that's not something you do unless you're very close. It was a fulfillment of the word of God in Psalm chapter 41 and verse 9, where we read, Even my close friend whom I trusted in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. For Judas, his proximity to Jesus didn't make him worthy of a seat at the next supper. Nor did it matter what the other disciples thought about Judas, did it? You see, secondly, a seat at Jesus's next supper is not about convincing other Christians you deserve to be there. It's not about convincing other Christians that you deserve a seat there. Judas clearly had everybody fooled, right? Because Jesus in verse 18, he says, one of you will betray me. And then we read in verse 19, you can look at it on the screen. They began to be distressed and say to him, surely not I. Each person thought, you know, each disciple was, was it, could it be me? They had no clue that it was Judas. Have you ever heard of the guy named William Matix? I had never heard the name before. It was in one of the commentaries I read, and it was a story of somebody who was given the, the name the evangelical bank robber. And that's because this guy had fooled his entire church. He had fooled his family, and he was like most wanted for robberies in Chicago. So in 1986, in the Chicago Tribune, here's this guy. He was gunned down after he had killed two federal agents in a botched bank robbery, and they caught the guy. And to everybody's shock, it was, it'd be like if it was one of our deacons or one of our pastors or one of our, you know, church family members that all of a sudden you turn around and they're in the news. Like he had made it into Home Life magazine as like a stand-up guy, an example. Judas would have been proud of him. He had learned how to say all the right things, 
how to do all the right things and act the right way. He had everybody fooled. And listen, you might be here today and you have your parents fooled. You could be here today and you have your Sunday school teacher completely duped. You can fool a church full of members. You could fool the pastor, but you cannot fool the master of the banquet. That's the one you can't fool. That's going back to Matthew chapter 22, what we see in verse 11. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. He didn't get the right dress code. So he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Dear friend, heaven and hell is what I'm talking about today. Joining in the marriage supper of the Lamb or being cast out into outer darkness for eternity where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus in the parable said, many are called, but few are chosen. Sure, Judas was called to be a disciple, but he wasn't chosen for a seat at the next supper. In fact, John chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 6 and verse 70 says that Judas was chosen didn't I choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? In our text, in Mark chapter 14 and verse 21, we read a curious thing. It says, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, that by whom could be through whom so we see two things happening in verse 21. We have the sovereignty of God. There, there was a, as it is written, like this is going to take place. And there was the responsibility of man. Woe to that man. Like he's going to be responsible for his actions. And so we are met with this idea of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man and how they interact Think with me to uh, Joseph as an example. It's a prime example that you've often probably heard. Where in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, the Bible says that what the brothers had intended for evil in selling Joseph into slavery, God intended for good. They meant it for evil and God meant it for good. And so R.C. Sproul comments on this idea of God's providence and man's responsibility, and he calls it concurrence, where two streams come together, the sovereign will of God and the earthly will of human flesh. And it's not as though God in his sovereignty coerced Judas to carry out the evil act of betraying Jesus. Rather, the sovereign grace of God worked his will in and through the choices of his free creatures. Judas did exactly what Judas wanted to do. But God brought good out of evil, and he brought redemption out of the treachery that took place. So in the end, we must conclude that to have a seat at the next supper, it is your responsibility. 
I know there's like four blanks in here, but you can underline the word your. It's your responsibility to believe, to repent and believe that Christ's body was broken for you and Christ's blood was shed for you. I'm going to repeat that because I know there's a lot of blanks in your outline. So just when you're writing it down, to have a seat at Jesus' next supper, it is your responsibility to repent and believe that Christ's body was broken for you and Christ's blood was shed for you. In this text, what we see is that Judas was responsible. Later in Mark's gospel, we're going to see kind of a comparison between Judas's regret and Peter's betrayal and repentance. And here's the thing that I want to encourage you as you're thinking about, will I be at the next supper? That being sorry for the consequences of your sin is not what it's all about. Like, have you ever met somebody who's like quick to apologize when they realize that it makes them look bad or that they got to deal with the consequences? They regret their choice. But regret is different from repentance. Repentance is a gift of God. We, we believe by faith that, that Jesus died and, and paid for our sin. And out of a change of heart, we want to turn from our sin and self and follow Jesus with our whole heart. Regret just says, I'm sorry that it happened. And I'm sorry that the consequences are unfolding. And so we want to have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. That was the result that happened to Judas. Worldly grief ended up producing death in him. But godly grief grieves over sin and repents and turns to Jesus as the answer for that. That is what the Lord's Supper proclaims every time we gather, is that his body and his blood was broken and shed for you, so that when you repent of your sin and put your trust in him, you have eternal life. Turning to Jesus is what every Lord's Supper is about. One other thing that I'd like to point out in our text before we close today is found in verse 24, where Jesus says to them, this is my body, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I think that that is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 53. I think that Jesus is alluding to Isaiah 53 and the servant of Isaiah, where we read of the suffering servant out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. You see that language there? Dividing him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. Do you hear the language of pouring out? Is my blood poured out for you? He poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Being at Jesus' next supper is answering the question Do I believe that Jesus shed his blood for my sin? 
Do I believe that he suffered and died for my transgressions? That is what it's about. It's not about how close you are to church and how religious you look and how other people think about the way you act and, boy, he must be a really good Christian. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with whether you believe Jesus was broken for you and for your sin and whether you believe his blood was poured out for you. The guest that was kicked out in Matthew 22 didn't have the right garments. He didn't have Christ's righteousness. He came in his own filthy rags and didn't have the clean robes for a wedding feast. And so we look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21 this morning and are reminded that Jesus has made provision for you to be robed in his righteousness. The Bible says that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, meaning Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Like, there's clothes for you, like there's garments already prepared to receive, to put on. The feast is prepared. So do you have the right garments for the feast? Whether you call it the Last Supper or you call it the First Supper, the question is, will you be at the next supper? That Thursday evening before Jesus passed away, he had prearranged for preparations to be made in a room for a meal that he would share and reorient all around himself. But as we close today, since Christ's resurrection and ascension, we know he's doing other preparations, don't we? John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to be with me so that where I am, there you may be also. So the Jewish son would often go and build on a room to his father's home and invite his bride to come at their wedding. And so once again, Jesus is preparing a room. Once again, there will be a next supper. The question is, will you be there?